you have a Bible at hand, I can encourage you to turn to Romans 1. And we're looking really today from verse 13 to verse 17. Looking at it under the title today, Gospel Compulsion. Now, remember, one of Paul's purposes in writing this letter to the Christians in Rome was to prepare them to help him as he would embark on a planned missionary journey on to Spain. So he wants these Christians to be enthused to help him in the work of the gospel. And Paul's method in making them eager to help was to preach the gospel to them in this letter. The gospel, yes, it is the means by which people come to salvation, but it is also the great means for enthusing and compelling Christians for gospel service and gospel witness. And so it's not just that when you get saved, you don't need the gospel. We continue to need the gospel in our lives day by day to help us to go on and to live. Where if we don't have the gospel, we are Pharisees. We just follow rules and regulations and do it out of just a sense of duty. The gospel is to fire us up to want to serve. Now, as we look at this passage, the first thing we see Paul speaking about here is gospel debt. Uh, Paul speaks of how he had often intended to come to these believers in Rome in order to have a harvest among them. There in verse 13. And the harvest he was speaking about was most likely in seeing people in Rome coming to salvation as Paul ministered there and ministered there through the church. Paul was never a lone ranger. He sought always to work within the church and through the church to work as a team with his fellow believers for this purpose. Now, the, his reason for wanting this harvest in Rome is given there in verse 14, where he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So it wasn't as if Paul said, I could decide to do this or not do that. He felt he had an obligation or a debt to people in regards to the gospel. Paul had been given the gospel to him by God in order to pass it on. And until he passes that on, on to people, he is in debt to these people. It's a bit like if you're uh, given some money for people. Uh, people put some envelopes through the uh, man's door for the offering to come. Now, until I pass that offering on and put it in the basket for the church, and since I'm in debt, if you're given something for someone, you're in debt until you pass that on. And that's what Paul is saying here. We need to realize that if we're Christians, we have been given this gospel not just for our salvation, we have been given this gospel to pass it on to others. We're not to be selfish. We're not to just hug it to ourselves. It's good news that we have to share. You see, we picture coming up with a story in, in 2 Kings of the lepers outside Samaria. Samaria was under siege for a, a long period of time. Samaria was the, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. It was under siege so much that even 
a donkey's head would fetch an awful lot of money for people to eat. And these lepers, they were in a very hopeless situation. There was practically no food left in the city. And they thought, well, let's go to the Assyrians. Let's go out to the Assyrian camp and throw ourselves upon the mercy of them. The worst thing is, they'll kill us. We're going to die anyway, so let's give this a try. And you remember the, the story? They go out to the Assyrian camp, and God had caused the Assyrians to panic, believing that an enemy was going to attack them, and they'd all run away. So here was all this food in these tents, and these lepers go out, and you can imagine, they begin to tuck into this food and have a really good time. But then they said this, we're not doing right in keeping this news to ourselves. They knew just a matter of a few hundred yards or meters away, there were the, their fellow Israelites in Samaria who were dying of starvation. And this is, how can we do right and keep this news to ourselves? We have to share this news of where deliverance can come from. It's the same when we have received salvation. Someone has described evangelism as one beggar telling another beggar where they can get some bread, indeed the very bread of life. Now when Paul speaks here of having an obligation to Greeks and barbarians, I love that word barbarians. It's not just a rugby team. Barbarians were non-Greeks. So as he speaks of this obligation to share the message to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish, he's saying, I can't be selective in this. I can't discriminate in this. I have to share this message with everyone. I cannot hold back. I can't think, well, I don't think so-and-so is a candidate for salvation, so I'll not share it with them. This past week in one of the wee devotions, I'm doing this wee series on excuses that people gave for not becoming a Christian. And one of the excuses that people gave is, I'm not good enough to become a Christian. And there's this mindset that some people have that they're down there and basically they have to get their life up to a certain standard. And if they get their life up to a certain good standard, then they can become a Christian. And what I was saying is the Bible clearly teaches, and you think of some of the, the rascals who become Christians in the Bible, is that indeed salvation is just for one thing you need to be saved, a sinner. So it's not that we get up there and then become a Christian. We're all down at the bottom. And you know, we need to be careful that that is the message that we share. It's, that it's not that we think some people who are a wee bit better and good will share the gospel with them. But those people who are really bad in their lives, those people whose lives are really messed up with drink or drugs or many other immoral sins, we'll wipe them out. Listen, the gospel is for sinners. And so there's no one we should rule out as being beyond God's grace. Paul later speaks of salvation being for Jew and Greek. For him, there were no people that were hands off in regards to sharing the gospel. I hope we have grasped that. Think of the biggest rogue that you can think of. Who is the worst person that you know personally? They're not beyond the grace of Christ. 
So the gospel debt, he, he owed this debt until he passed on what had been given to him. And then secondly, we have gospel eagerness in verses 15 to 16. Paul, in this task of sharing the gospel, was not just doing it reluctantly. He wasn't just doing it out of a sense of duty. He says in verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The gospel was something he was eager and excited about. It was something he was eager and excited about sharing with people. Not just a reluctant duty. He was thrilled at being able to do this. And why? Look at verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, by saying he wasn't ashamed of the gospel, he was basically saying he boasted in the gospel. He was saying he gloried in it. The gospel is something he marveled at. He had this sense of wonder as he thought of the gospel message. It was something truly amazing to him. It was something that had gripped his heart, his soul, and every part of his life. And remember to Paul, the gospel is Jesus, who he is, and what he has done. And for Paul, Jesus was everything. And that's why he was so thrilled at the prospect of sharing the gospel. But why does he say it in this negative way? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why didn't he just say, I glory in the gospel? He says that elsewhere. I think in Galatians he says that, how he gloried in the gospel, in the cross. I think the answer has to be that Paul knows the temptations we face. And he knew that people in Rome faced the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. It was a real temptation because in the world the gospel was something despised and seen as foolishness by the world out there, something they ridiculed. Putting your trust in this lowly carpenter's son who was born in a wee backwater town or born in a wee backwater town and came up and grew up in another wee backwater town in the backwater province of the Roman Empire who was sentenced to death by the Romans as a criminal. This was not seen as something sensible, something glorious. This was seen as foolishness to accept. Paul in his other letters speaks about the, both the foolishness and the offense of the cross. The gospel message is unpopular, he teaches, because it confronts people with their sin and their failure in life. And none of us like our failings and faults being pointed out. And so the world despises the gospel because it says to them, you're a sinner and you can't save yourself. It's not popular. And so faced with ridicule and opposition towards the gospel, there's this temptation to be ashamed of it, to not to share it, or at least to water down the gospel message to make it a wee bit more comfortable for people. And Paul's response to such temptation is a resounding and a strong, no, I am not going to be ashamed of the gospel. 
I glory in the gospel. I marvel at the gospel. The gospel is something that thrills my soul. But why was that his response? Why was he saying that? Look at verse 16 again. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel wasn't just a message. The gospel had power. It is the very power of God, he says here. And when the gospel is proclaimed, when the message of Jesus is revealed, God is at work, God is moving, God is doing something special in the lives of people through this gospel. And what does the gospel do in the power of God? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel saves people. It rescues people from the sin and the misery that goes with that sin. The gospel delivers people from everlasting judgment in hell. The gospel brings people into new life, into eternal life. The gospel brings people into fellowship of God. The gospel turns people who are hopeless and helpless into people who have hope and real purpose in life. The gospel opens the door of heaven for undeserving sinners. The truth is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only answer for sin. It is the only way that people can be delivered from their sin. There aren't many roads through which we can be rescued. We can only be rescued through Christ alone. And that's why he says it has to be a gospel for Jews and Greeks. People's best efforts, people's other religions, people's religious duties can never save them. The gospel of Jesus Christ alone is the power of God to bring salvation to sinners. There's no other way. One way, God said, to get to heaven, Jesus is the only way. And that's why Paul was not ashamed of this. That is why Paul gloried in this message. This is why Paul rejoiced in this truth and rejoiced in preaching it because he knew it was the only hope for the people of the world. When we are convinced of that, not just in our minds, but we are convinced of that, that the gospel alone is the power of God for salvation we will be thrilled and we would be motivated to share that. What about you? Are you tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Or do you see in the gospel something that you marvel at? The glory of Christ coming into this world, the Son of God to save a sinner like you and me. Is it something that thrills your soul and you long for others to embrace it. You see, the key to not being ashamed of the gospel is not just to have a resolute attitude, I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I'm not going to be embarrassed by what the Bible teaches. You have to move beyond that. You have to pray that as you study God's word, as you study the gospel, that your heart will be so moved with a sense of wonder at Jesus and what he has done. You have to glory in the gospel. You have to rejoice in Jesus and what he has done. 
We have to be set on fire by the truth and the spirit so that indeed the gospel is not something we know we should share, but the gospel is something we're delighted to share. And so, gospel eagerness, not ashamed. And then thirdly, we have gospel righteousness in verse 17. Paul says here in verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here Paul teaches how the gospel brings salvation to people, how the gospel is worked out in people's lives. He begins here by speaking of the the righteousness of God. Now, the righteousness of God speaks of God's absolute moral perfection and how that could be satisfied. This idea of the righteousness of God, it is something that haunted that young monk all those years ago called Martin Luther. He had a very high view of the righteousness of God. And it meant that no matter how good he tried to be, no matter how religious he tried to be, he never got a peace that he was right with God. And indeed, the harder he tried, the more he did, the less peace that he had. But then one day when reading this very verse 17 in Romans 1, it was like a light going on in his mind. And his heart would never be the same again. And here he's introduced this wonderful truth that sinners can become righteous before this all-righteous God through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, before he was trying to do it, he was trying to earn his way, he was trying to become righteous himself, he was trying to make himself into a good person who would be good enough to be accepted by God. And no matter how hard he tried, he always failed. But now, the glory of the truth that you can be righteous through faith in Jesus. Before, Luther only saw righteousness as something that belonged to God. And that word righteousness terrified him. This God is so righteous. But this verse then caused them to see that God's righteousness can come down to sinners through faith. There's a quote here from Habakkuk 2 in verse 4. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. If you know the story of Habakkuk, he's in dialogue with God. He, He looks at the world around him or he looks at the country around him of Israel and he's so appalled at the wickedness and the sin that's there. And he basically says, God, how can you let this sin go on? And God says to him, Habakkuk, I'm not going to. I'm going to raise up the the Babylonians to come and to punish the people of Israel. And then Habakkuk says, but God, how could you use the Babylonians, that wicked and sinful people? And it's then that the Lord says to Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, Habakkuk is being told that in the midst of all the evil around him, in the midst of the great hurt and confusion that he's feeling as he thinks of this, 
The righteous are those who don't try to work everything out themselves, but rather in their situation of need and concern, trust in the Lord. Trust that the Lord is good and he's working out his good purposes. Luther, through this verse, learnt that in the confusion that he was experiencing because of his guilt before God, he was not to try and work out his own way of salvation by his good deeds or religion, but rather he was to trust in God to receive salvation as a gift through Jesus. And that was like a wonderful light. Peace came into his heart. Righteousness is now realized not from these good deeds, but through trusting in Jesus and what he has done. But Paul uses a, a very ex- interesting expression here. Look in verse 17. He says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. From faith for faith. Now, I think what Paul is saying here, that when someone is saved at the beginning of this new life in Christ, faith is there. It is through faith that they grasp hold of this message of salvation and righteousness comes to them. So they understand that message of righteousness and salvation through faith, which is a gift to them. But that's not the end of the story of faith. Their new life of righteousness, their new life in a relationship with Jesus leads to more faith, from faith for faith. In other words, what Paul is saying here, salvation and the life of the Christian has faith at the beginning of it, the middle of it, and the end of it. Faith runs through the whole life of the believer. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, we need to be careful here. The crucial thing is not just about having faith. The crucial thing is who is the object of our faith? What is our faith? What is our faith in? And Jesus helps us, and you'll know these words very well, in John 14, verse 1, when he says, Believe in God. Believe also in me. And do you remember that's in the upper room? Jesus is about to go and to die on the cross of Calvary. And he says to his disciples, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. And when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he wasn't saying he was going up to heaven to decorate their room in heaven. He was going to the cross. He was going to Calvary to prepare their place. And so the faith that is needed, it's not a general faith that God exists or not just a general faith that God will look after them. There's many a person in hell today who had that faith. The faith is needed as in the saving work of Jesus Christ where they receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. And that's the most important question of all today. Let me use that old evangelism explosion question. 
If you were to die tonight and to appear before God and he is to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Please don't say I belong to Brookside. As wonderful as Brookside is, I'll not get you into heaven. Don't say I have prayed, I've studied your Bible, I've lived a good life, I've done no one any harm. Not good enough. The only correct answer to that question, why should I let you into heaven, has to be, I'm not good enough. I'm a sinner. But I'm trusting in Jesus and his death on the cross to save me. Faith, trusting in the finished work of Christ. So as we recap, what have we learned today about gospel compulsion? How are we compelled and fired on in the work of the gospel? We think about the gospel debt. We have been given this gospel, not just to be saved, but to share it with others. Gospel eagerness, we're not to be ashamed, we're to be thrilled, we're to be excited at the glory of the gospel as we go deeper with Christ. And gospel righteousness, the wonder that we can be righteous before this righteous God simply through trusting in Jesus and his finished work. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we want to thank and praise you for the glory and the the wonder of the gospel. Father, we live in a world where it's said sometimes if something seems too good to be true, it is too good to be true. And that can create a very cynical attitude with us. And, but it's true about many things. But Father, we thank you. It's not true about the gospel. Because your word teaches the gospel. Your word teaches us that you, a holy, pure and perfect God, looked upon vile and hell's deserving sinners like us and from eternity planned that your son would come, live that perfect life that we have failed to live and die that death on the cross as a sacrifice for sin to take our place so we could be saved. Oh, Father, may we never lose a sense of wonder. And Father, if there's any believer here today who's got tired and weary in their Christian life. Oh, Father, give them a fresh vision of Jesus, a fresh vision of the gospel. And Father, may none of us be ashamed, but glory in the wonder of this message, in the wonder of what Jesus has done. And Father, for any here in this hall today, young or old, or any who are watching online or in the car park, are not right with you, O God. Just help them to see that today Jesus is waiting with open arms and say, come unto me and I will never cast you out. For such grace, for such faith we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.